0: This program is brought to you by Personallifemedia.com.
1: Thank you, Duncan. I have found our conversations over the years to be scintillating and stimulating. And you're a person who I immediately thought of to bring on board as our speaker and master of ceremonies because you have a special way of contextualizing and framing and facilitating a process. It's a process-oriented thing. And our conference is really about an invitation for people to participate in a transformation.
0: From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm. Mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now, as together with you, The active deep listener. We evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to Living Dialogues. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell. And for this particular dialogue, I'm truly delighted to have as my guest, John Major Jenkins. John Major Jenkins is an independent researcher who has devoted himself for over the last two decades to reconstructing ancient Mayan cosmology and philosophy. His books include Zolkin, Visionary Perspectives and Calendar Studies, Maya Sacred Science, his great book Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, published a few years ago, and Galactic Alignment, also very highly praised. He has taught at Esalen Institute and Naropa University, and his work has been featured on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. To learn more about his work, you can go to www.alignment2012.com. That's dot 2012com So, John, what a great pleasure it is again to be here most recent of many times that we've conversed together here in the studio.
1: Yes, going on about a decade now. I'm very glad to be here once again.
0: And it's so interesting if we look at this perspective because you started your research into the Mayan calendar and into all of the aspects that have led now to this fascination that the world has with 2012 a couple of decades ago and we found in a prior conversation that i had received my mission you might say a certain revelation to begin these living dialogues in 1992 which coincidentally was the beginning of the last of the 13 cartoons that lead up to 2012 the 20-year period cartoon of the baktun yes which yes. is the 260-year period That leads up to, in this case, the end of the Mayan calendar. But it's just a very interesting coincidence that right around this time, when we're in the last moments of transformation toward this end date, beginning date, rebirth date of 2012, that we began to really sow the seeds, if we will, of what you and I are now doing together with the conference that's coming up on May 29 and 30 in Fort Collins, Colorado, entitled 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation. And the reason we called it 2012 Now is that we are wanting to emphasize, as we said in the first of this seven-part series with Robert Sittler, another presenter at the conference, we wanted to emphasize that the moment of transformation is available to us at any time. This is a timeless journey that people who have left records, either in stone or in tablets or in writing or in oral traditions of the human species throughout history, have engaged in. This is a pilgrimage, a journey that's both inner and outer, a kind of road, as the Mayans call it. And so we've decided to do this Road to 2012 Now as a seven-part series of doing these dialogues with myself, who will be the master of ceremonies and opening speaker, and yourself, who along with Lorraine Tennyson really conceived this and invited me to join you as a co-producer. So at this point, I'd like to just ask you to talk a little bit about what you've been up to lately because I think that'll help set the table for why this conference that we're putting on at the end of May in Fort Collins, Colorado is so timely. And the way in which we're going to put it on is very different in many regards from the approach taken certainly by the commercial media and others.
1: Well, lately I've been uh, busy working on my next book, which is all about 2012, of course, and Mm -hmm. it'll be out probably in about a year. Um, But I've also been working with Lorraine Tennyson. Uh, She's with a production company in Fort Collins called Golden Gyre Productions. And what we have conceived of doing and bringing you on board for this, it's been Um, An interesting process. Um, Our original conception was to present a 2012 concept that was intended to present different facets of authentic Maya teachings. So, you know, I've been uh, involved in many different conferences through the years, and I've noticed that there's been this uh, sort of progression in a sense there's there's a lot of treatment of 2012 and i've noticed strangely that um conference themes have been getting farther and farther away from even acknowledging that this 2012 date comes from the maya tradition my work going back to being originally inspired by my travels in central america living and working among the maya has always been oriented towards reconstructing the authentic original teachings. And there's plenty there that's very inspiring for anybody on a spiritual journey. There's details about very specific Maya traditions, including the ball game and the creation myth, and all this is very fascinating. And there's different facets of what we might call authentic Maya teachings for cycle endings. And so we've selected specific speakers to come aboard to address, in their own ways, uh, these uh, central themes. And that was one of my
0: first contributions here, was to bring in people like Stan Groff and Rick Tarnas and Saban Fusome to stress that really what we're talking about here is, as you've put it in many of your books, uh, what is sometimes called the primordial tradition or the perennial philosophy, that the Mayan have in a sense, created a cosmology which is their gift to the planetary species, but it's not making any pretense of being the be-all or the end-all or anything unique or having a secret code that no one has ever discovered before. Quite the contrary, even the Mayan themselves really celebrate the teachings that I've been exposed to, the linkages as you have helped expand it to what's called the perennial philosophy, the primordial tradition. We go back to the Vedas in India. We talk about other indigenous traditions. We talk about Egypt. We talk about Greece. We can talk about the Mesopotamian culture. There has always been a path of discovery, both inner and outer, that's within the human psyche. The Mayans call it the road. Sometimes in other traditions, it's called the pilgrimage. Kabir, for instance, the great 15th century poet who combines within himself both a Hindu and Muslim background, having been born into one tradition, abandoned as an orphan, raised in the other tradition, then he's gone beyond these two correlatives, correlatives—they of Hindu and Muslim approaches. And he said, we are all pilgrims on this earth. Mm. Goethe, the great 19th century poet, agreed that not only are we all pilgrims on this earth, But if we don't actually make this inner journey, we will remain strangers on this dark earth. Meaning that the earth itself is an invitation, as Socrates said, to the examined life, to the looking within to discover the secrets of the human heart and to look without and celebrate and discover the secrets that are open secrets of nature in the daytime and nature at night where we see the celestial bodies in the heavens. Now the Mayans explored both with very close observation, and they made some very beautiful and very stirring observations. In our first of these seven dialogues, I explored many of these with Robert Sittler in terms of the earth wisdom of the Mayans. And so part of our conference is to re-root ourselves in a connection with the living universe. And go beyond this adolescent fascination with man-made technology, with man-made conceptual wisdom, and with asserting things that maybe are my particular view of the world. But making then exclusive claims, as certain religions do these days, as certain political ideologies do, we are right, you are wrong. Our approach is very, very different, and it's going to be joining Heaven and Earth. And one of the things we're doing in this second dialogue with you is that we're going to point our attention to begin with toward the stars. We have examined the Earth connection with Robert Sittler, and now we're going to talk about the galactic alignment and what was observed two millennia ago by the Mayan priests or astrologers or cosmologists who turned their attention toward the heavens
1: the galactic alignment we could spend a lot of time on that in both the the scientific or astronomical details getting that very clear as well as the uh what you might call the metaphysical spiritual implications in other words the way that the maya uh, incorporated this astronomical alignment scenario into their spiritual teachings, like with their creation myth and in their ball game and so on. Um, you're right; it's uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, we have to look back to the origins of the Long Count calendar, and uh, that apparently happened in this transitional pre-classic Maya culture called the Izapan culture about. 2,000 years ago and that's when the earliest long-count dates start appearing in the archaeological record now as I got into this research back in the late 80s and I was asking the questions about 2012 and where did the 2012 calendar first appear and who invented it and all these kinds of questions it led me into um, you know identifying this key idea which is the galactic alignment The galactic alignment is the alignment of the December Solstice Sun with the Milky Way. That's sort of the easiest way to phrase it or state what the galactic alignment is. It's a real astronomical thing. Uh, It's caused by the precession of the equinoxes, which is uh, the wobble of the Earth on its axis. One complete precessional cycle is 26,000 years. It effectively changes our angular orientation to the larger Milky Way and galaxy, and what it does is that it, it shifts the position of the, of the sun along the ecliptic, and uh, for many thousands of years, as viewed from Earth, the uh, December solstice sun, well, let's put it this way. If you were at the early site of Azapa, and you were looking at the sky at night, you would notice the bright band of the Milky Way arching overhead, and, and you could plot where the position of the December solstice sun rose on the horizon. And the Maya, being astute observers of nature and the skies, they realized that the position of the December solstice sun was slowly shifting closer and closer and closer to the bright band of the Milky Way. And there's an interesting feature that lies along the Milky Way called... Uh, the Dark Rift, or the Shabalba Bay. Uh, the Shabalba Bay is the road to the other world, and uh, that that's a main feature of Maya creation mythology. So the galactic alignment, which is occurring in our era, is a rare astronomical alignment within the cycle of precession. It happens only once every 26,000 years. You can't really nail it down to a specific day or a year. That's why I like to uh, talk about uh, a window or a range of time. And we're basically in it now. And that's why we really shouldn't be future projecting to some specific date in 2012. This emerged uh, as the real key you know, to understanding why the Maya created this long count calendar and why they created... This 13 Bakhtun cycle that ends on December 21st of 2012. It's it's pointing to this really interesting uh, alignment between uh, what they would call Cosmic Father, the December Solstice Sun, and Cosmic Mother, the Milky Way.
0: And that's one of the great themes of our approach to this, as it has been in my work for the last 20 and more years, and in your work, is what we might call the sacred marriage that any time there's creation, there has to be a masculine seed and a feminine womb. And we're not making this gender specific. Even within our own psyche, there, it could be the seed of an idea and the womb of our developing, emerging consciousness. We might be a child, we might be an adolescent, we might be an elder, we might be at various stages of our life. But that process of the seed of an inspiration could be an intuition, could be a concept, could be an imaginal moment, could be a dream, comes into the existing womb, we might say, of our psyche at its point of evolution. And together, uh, when the synchronicity or the alignment comes into being, it can give birth to a new expression of our personality. And it has been my teaching here on the Living Dialogues program for the last uh, 15 and more years that, There there is an evolutionary impulse at work in a fully alive universe that we are embedded as our indigenous forefathers and mothers knew in a fully alive universe, completely permeated with intelligence, whether it be the landscape or the plant kingdom or we in the animal kingdom, there is the sense of an evolutionary progression of awareness happening. And if we look at the history of our own species, we can see it in the metaphor of development of moving from an experience of being fully embedded and in innate dialogue with an alive universe where our hunter gatherer forefathers understood that they could communicate with animal spirits, animal totems, animals themselves. uh, And that had very much to do with a feeling of, as the anthropologists call it, a being in mystical participation with an alive universe. Not unlike what happens to a child when a child is born out of the womb uh, and finds themselves in a loving family, that family itself of childhood can be extremely nourishing with a balanced father and mother energy in this example, and they can feel embedded in an alive family unit where their impulse to love is reciprocated, their impulse to communicate it is reciprocated, they're seen, they're respected, and so on. But even then, at a certain point, the human being pushes away mother, like mother nature in the larger sense, or father, father sky, to empower itself as a necessary adaptive survival mechanism. And these are the famous teenage years when, as Mark Twain once put it, I couldn't believe at the age of 14 how ignorant my parents were. And then when I turned 21, I couldn't believe they'd learned so much in seven short years, (laughs) right? And so many people, I think, at this point are coming to the awareness that our general planetary culture With all its variations, is nonetheless in a kind of human species adolescent stage where the more dominant cultures are expressing this evolutionary impulse through creating human technology and then venerating it. And in doing that, we have, in a sense, denatured our position in the world. We have disenchanted the universe as if the universe from our scientific perspective, only exists for us to poke it and study it and chop it up into little pieces and reconstruct it and so on. Until very recently in academe in Western universities, it has been thought that animals actually do not have consciousness. They don't have emotions or feelings. That's only something that's become respected in academe within the last decade. So it's quite an amazing experience that we're living through that we have become so estranged from the natural world that we have this kind of fear-based angst of a Mm -hmm. lack of connection with what the shamanic culture is called being held in the warm embrace of a caring intelligence. And so part of what's happening now, I believe, is that we're being called instinctively to reintegrate Our indigenous heritage, which is still alive in the psyche of every human being, Mm -hmm, just has been ignored for a long time. And we've been emphasizing these other aspects and integrate it with the best of our modern mind creativity and create then a sacred marriage that goes beyond adolescence and reunites us with our birthright of feeling connected to a larger whole. But at the same time, Seeing and understanding that each one of us is innately creative, innately invited to collaborate in a constant flow of creation with other beings and with the planet itself. So with that background, let's go now and revisit Maya cosmology, because in their own cosmology, they really did link the observations that they had during the daytime of the earth, the Earth mm-hmm. wisdom, with the observations they had of the stars and the galaxy at night, even with the naked eye, into a kind of sacred marriage cosmology. And so now let's take that observation of the galactic alignment. What did they feel that meant? Why were they even interested in this? And what did they draw from it as conclusions for a living presence in their own lifetime?
1: Well, it's, it's very amazing and appropriate that you sketched, the uh, phases or stages of psychological development in such a way, because um, as you sketched uh, how we're sort of in this state of um, self-consciousness, almost like adolescent narcissism, our culture, we're in this phase. Well, that would be um, the phase of the development of the ego self. Um, And it's amazing how the way you describe that. Is really kind of another way of talking about what the spiritual teaching is in the Maya creation myth mm-hmm. and the Maya creation mythology um, of course it's not simply quaint fairy tales or something like that there's actual as Joseph Campbell would say there's uh, you know uh, archetypal perennial wisdom inside of this mythological mm-hmm. uh, uh, um template and um, I guess we could start with the celestial or astronomical observation that the ancient Maya made. And they observed nature during the day, and they saw cycles in nature and plant growth and the life cycle of human beings. And they saw that reflected in the sky. So for them, it was a given, as above, so below. And this galactic alignment scenario in which we come back into relationship with the higher galactic sphere this is like a symbol for the uh sort of challenge uh, the crisis point that we're at um i guess another way i would talk about that is that there's i guess we could talk about this from the vantage point of Uh, the pre-rational stage that uh, a baby is in, it it does experience a kind of oceanic bliss and unity, Mm -hmm. but then it pushes away from that, as you said, and it develops an ego consciousness. Now, the ego consciousness will perfect itself, and there's a kind of pathological form of ego consciousness, which I think is really what we have running rampant in the world today, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of megalomania. And we see this manifesting in, um, you know, world leaders, as well as the values of corporations, which are short-term profit motive, greedy, all these kinds of narcissistic, adolescent, ego-driven things. Now, in the creation mythology, it talks about the appearance of a being called Seven Macaw. Seven Macaw is the vain and false ruler, the ego archetype that appears at the end of the cycle and the hero twins come along and the hero twins have to basically do away with seven macaw uh, before they can facilitate the resurrection of their father now their father represents this holistic unity consciousness that you were speaking of and I think this is a transformational ethos It's not about killing the ego, of course. It's really about placing ego back into right relationship with Mm -hmm. what the perennial philosophers would call the divine self uh, or the unity consciousness, that kind of consciousness that is reconnected with a concern for all beings, a concern for the whole picture a concern for, as the American Indians said, you know, making political decisions based upon how it's going to affect seven generations down the road. This mm-hmm. kind of selfless uh, approach to uh, running civilization.
0: And I think that's really beautifully stated because what we're now being invited to do is to honor the individual self and the whole trajectory of our Species moving from an initial indigenous uh, phase into an adolescent phase and now joining the best of both, we might say. We're not talking about trying to go back into a childhood phase or go back and reunite with the elders of our indigenous world and their wisdom as what we must now adopt word for word as dogma. We're not trying to glorify it either. What we're doing is we're seeing that at all phases of human species interaction on the planet, there has been this creative, timeless progression that each individual human being is invited to go through. And at this point, what we're looking at is in doing this conference, 2012 Now, taking an event that will happen as the years progress on December 21, 2012, and demystifying it and bringing it into the now, because it is here now. One of the things you could talk about briefly is this movie that is uh, in production now, we understand, that will come out in December and will be a kind of adolescent, fear-based, catastrophic movie that we could be entering something where the world will fall apart and the center will not hold and all (laughs) of that sort of thing.
1: Well, to a A civilization like our own that is sort of organized around the ego Um, the idea of transformation and renewal is frightening Um, our culture also has a linear time philosophy so it's not like the traditional cultures like the maya and virtually every other civilization that's uh, appeared on the surface of the planet in which there's a cyclic time idea and within a cyclic time philosophy the end of a cycle is not about some cataclysmic end uh... it's about transformation and renewal this is one of the key ideas that is actually emphasized and present in the maya creation mythology It talks about a series of world ages and at the end of each age humanity goes through a transformation and a renewal now this movie that's coming out um, at the end of this year december two thousand nine I'm sure it'll be you know entertaining and all this, but um, uh, I think what's revealing is that it's 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 almost or from what I've heard anyway is that it's really just going to be about the end of the world, and this is perhaps the biggest shadow projection that our own civilization can make onto the 2012 material. It's totally wrong, by the way, in terms of what the material's really about, but it is revealing of the biggest fear, the biggest shadow projection that our own civilization has. And maybe the, the benefit of this is that we'll be able to uh, embrace that, own it, and get beyond it so that we can... Um, really engage with what the the full potential is with this this whole thing. And
0: which is the potential of the perennial death and rebirth, that even as we look, as we mentioned in our first dialogue in this series, to the Hindu three-partite representation of Brahma and then Vishnu and then Shiva, each one of them, by the way, has a feminine consort which would be Sarasvati with Brahma, which would be Lakshmi with Vishnu, and which would be Kali or Shakti with Shiva. And they have many other names as well regarding all of the different facets and ways in which the masculine and the feminine can can manifest. But basically the three principles are creation, maintaining, and death. But Mm -hmm. death is not the end. It's only the beginning of another cycle of creation. And we see this around in the natural world all the time, where there is natural death occurring within the forest, and uh, for instance, a, a tree falls to the forest, it rots, and out of the rotting hulk of the dead tree, new life burgeons, and so on. And if we look at the sky, this is the fascinating thing. The Mayans and others have seen that there are cyclical beginnings and endings in the sky, and this is really what this galactic alignment is, is in essence about, it's just like a way of reminding us of this ancient way of understanding the world, that we're combining the cyclical way of understanding the world in indigenous culture and the linear way of infinite progression that's Mm. been understood in a flat line kind of way in Mm -hmm. the modern mind and in the adolescent mind into a kind of spiral. You could see an evolutionary spiral here where we're actually expanding infinitely as we now know from even Western science is the very nature of our universe. And while doing so, we're continually involved in this cycle of death and rebirth and balancing the letting go quality of that which no longer serves and being receptive to the seed of a new inspiration Mm -hmm. and making this Shiva Shakti masculine feminine seed womb dance over and over again. And here we have this event in the sky, which is there to actually activate, we feel, our imagination to bring us to pay attention in the present moment, in the now, to this infinite process so that as we look, for instance, at the world (laughs) global economic crisis, instead of being full of fear that somehow our lives are going to fall apart and we'll have no money and the psychology of scarcity that has been cultivated by our consumer culture for many, many years is going to result in... Death and poverty for all of us. We can see it as a necessary progression and then start focusing our attention on the miraculous event that happened in 2008, which was the election of Barack Obama. Barack Obama, someone who articulated a sense of hope, number one, who articulated a statement that together, yes, we can. He was not talking the old adolescent talk, I will fight for you, which only continues to infantilize the electorate uh, and make them dependent upon the hero politician. No, Mm -hmm. we together, white people, black people, brown people, yellow people, red people, able people, disabled people, gay people, straight people, together we can change ourselves, we can change our society, and we can change the world. Well, he didn't just come out of nowhere. This man, Barack Obama, actually was evoked by the zeitgeist, or the spirit of the times, the best of our intentions that it is possible we can reverse this path of greed and degeneracy of our economic system, of our education, of our culture, the continuing conflicts over the name of God that are causing literally thousands upon thousands of deaths around the world, and live in harmony in a peaceful higher consciousness. So that will be really very interesting. The part of our theme in this conference, one of our speakers, William Henry, for instance, will be talking about the, we might say, the, the sacred architecture in Washington, D.C., where the architecture of our national monuments in the United States came from a mystical tradition, from the Masonic tradition, one that came from Europe originally with the people who built the great cathedrals. And you talk about this in your great book, Galactic alignment, that the Mayan vision is yet another, but not an exclusive, take on this human cultural observation that at the highest points has been articulated, not only in the Vedas, but in Egypt and in the mystical uh, tradition prior to the Renaissance in Europe, the Gnostic tradition and many other cultures. So let's talk now about how our intention in this conference is not to be only Maya specific. It is to honor the deep universal marriage of earth wisdom and sky wisdom in the Mayan culture, but also to expand it to a human planetary culture with Saban Fusome from Africa leading us in a ritual of transformation. Stanislav Grof, born in Czechoslovakia and Eastern Europe, talking about his 50 years of working with the death-rebirth process. Richard Tarnas, who has brought almost single-handedly Western astrology back into its mystical deep origins of reading the energies of the skies while respecting all of the astronomical discoveries of Western science, and so on, with Robert Sittler, Christine Page, myself, Lorraine, and everyone in the gathering being invited to participate with deep interactive attention and appreciation so that each one of us will, in the course of this two-day period, May 29 and 30, experience a kind of Transformative awakening of our inner infrastructure, even as we're getting a perspective as to how we can contribute to a creative rearrangement and rebirth of our outer infrastructure of economy mm. with green energy and culture, oh, yeah. better mm-hmm. education, and so on.
1: Well, yeah, it's important to emphasize that the conference is not about what most of the other 2012 conferences or books are about. Um, uh, what There's a strange phenomenon in the 2012 phenomenon where people think that it's, uh, you know, they can create systems, new models, new systems. That's all very creative and inventive. But what I've noticed is that uh, um, I think what we're really craving to do is to identify the universal level, what Aldous Huxley called the highest common factor of the Maya tradition. Which therefore then connects us into the highest uh intent and uh insights of other world traditions as well. This is, of course, the perennial philosophy that lies at the root of all of the world's great spiritual traditions. And you know, to say that Maya spiritual teachings belong to the perennial philosophy is kind of a kind of a new idea. I mean, that's been my modus operandi for a long time i'm kind of doing a joseph campbell kind of thing with Mm -hmm. the maya material and uh you know i think it's important that people understand even though the maya material seems so weird and alien and movies are made and the maya are still portrayed in the stereotypical way i think we have to acknowledge and recognize that uh they belong to this great perennial wisdom tradition that we've granted admission to Hinduism and Buddhism and all these other great traditions. And in so doing, we can see that the work that Sabonfu is doing or the work that Richard Tarnas is doing, these are all aspects of the perennial wisdom teachings that you can identify at the core of the Maya tradition. But as you said, it's it's not about making it an exclusive sort of let's follow the maya calendar kind mm-hmm. of thing or let's follow this maya calendar derived system that i invented it's not it's not really about that it's about coming together and celebrating the universal uh, the universal wisdom that we can see within the maya material but also within any tradition
0: and i think this really is what holds the key to all of us everywhere on the planet, adapting to the evolutionary impulse. Because if we look at evolution itself in the nature of the universe, in the cosmos, we could say, we see that the cosmos, the universe, is infinitely expanding, meaning it is continuing to produce many different forms of manifestation, even as other ones are dying off. And they are not only proliferating in their singularity, and their uniqueness, but they're being integrated at higher and higher levels. So in a sense, our adolescent mind, which we might call our either or mind of wanting to impose our own identity on the world, to seek a way of empowering ourselves, rather than learning how to dance with being both active and receptive at the same time, both penetrating and nurturing, accepting and discerning, Doing that particular dance, there is this way of trying to seek safety, we might say in a very self-referential or egoic way, whether it's at the personal level or at the national or tribal or ethnic level, and impose our way is better or our way is right. And it's learning how to actually flow with this Mm. evolutionary impulse to as the motto that Barack Obama has resurrected from the American culture. It's been ignored for many, many decades, but always one of my favorite aspects of the American transmission was e pluribus unum, out of the many, we are one. And he kept saying that during his campaign, and he was the one, thankfully, that was elected, because that is the vision we need to learn how to grow up into, out of the many, we are one. But we don't do it by imposing a particular ideology, a particular ethnic hubris as, for instance, was tried in Germany in World War II, uh, the fatherland, the uber race, all the variations on that theme, whether they're religious or political or ethnic or tribal, all of that is a fear-based kind of consciousness that's not yet ready to let go into this higher evolutionary perspective. And from that point of view, unless we do that, And we have to do it one person at a time. We have to do Mm. it in our own inner inner infrastructure. We can't wait to be redeemed by someone from the outside or some cosmic event is going to happen that will either destroy us or will save us. We have to be able to do it ourselves. That's the beauty and the privilege and the birthright of being human the joy actually of discovery and of serving and of being creative and extending warmth and participating in this loving pulse of the universe itself and so to do that has to be an individual but also collaborative Mm -hmm. effort at the same time and that's what we're intending to create this energy field at the conference, which, or the gathering, which will acknowledge that each and every person is an integral, active, co-creative part of the gathering. And together, as Obama himself would say, yes, we can. Not we are going to follow a particular policy or person and we'll lead you there. No, it's together. Yes, we can. Out of the many, we are one. And one of the things that I've quoted a number of times since I was at the inauguration as just another statement that came out in a public realm that was watched by people around the world was the statement that Obama articulated that as the world becomes smaller our common humanity is revealed to us and as the world changes so too we must change and this is in a sense a kind of evolutionary imperative and we go here now to the fact that if we don't change, if we don't learn how to respect and appreciate and hold diversity in a larger whole, if we stay fixated even on the Maya, for instance, mm-hmm. we're not going to be meeting the evolutionary flow or challenge and and we will fall back into the evolutionary muck as 99% of all species and manifestations throughout the history of the universe have done, they no longer exist. And so our challenge and our invitation is to be who we really are with this deep-hearted ability to appreciate. And so we can now kind of bring this particular dialogue, I think, toward a conclusion by revisiting the etymology of the word apocalypse. In the popular imagination, when people talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, famine, warfare, sickness, natural disasters, and so on, People have come to believe that apocalypse means a catastrophe, a destruction we 're not going to survive it uh, it's this horrific thing, but maybe if we like the left Behind series in fundamental christianity if we if we join a mega church or if we swear allegiance to a particular Christian doctrine, maybe we'll be raptured as everyone else descends into the flames of hell. This kind of separatist save me philosophy rather than the true meaning of apocalypse. The etymology of the apocalypse is lifting the veil or revelation. And so mm-hmm. this website that we've created, you and I and Lorraine in particular as the producers, uh, has been called www.unveiling2012.org. Because what we're looking forward to as we're making these pilgrimage steps progressively in these seven dialogues toward focusing our attention on this gathering is an unveiling. We are going to together evoke an unveiling of a deeper aspect of the mystery, which is life itself. Something that will touch each of us in the heart, we'll see more clearly, we'll be empowered, we'll have a certain kind of opening that will not be built on some kind of divisive ideology, like we are the master race, or the Mayans are going to save us, or 2012, the confluence that may occur in the heavens, the galactic alignment will turn the key, and some will be saved, others will drop off, and all of that.
1: Well, you know, I think that springtime in the Front Range in Fort Collins. Colorado. Colorado, the end of May, that's going to be a beautiful time. I I predict it's going to be a beautiful weekend, and I'm really happy that you're involved, and I think that As we get closer and closer to 2012, we're going to realize more and more deeply that it's really, really about the now. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, facilitating the transformation. Uh, As you said, in uh, several different ways, I think that the universe is trying to evolve us or awaken Mm -hmm. us. Uh, But it's not a predetermined thing. It's like you said, it's not just a, a switch is going to get flipped and then it happens. 2012 is not about what's going to happen it's a you know i used to say that uh you can't just sit around waiting for the 2012 bus if you do that for long enough you'll soon realize that you are the bus mm-hmm. and and so it's really about empowering the transformation it's about empowering individuals paradoxically through coming together and celebrating the essential oneness that we all have so i'm really looking forward to it i'm i'm overjoyed that we're bringing aboard all these different people that are speaking to different aspects of what are essentially Maya, you know, perennial teachings that are also reflected in the Maya material. So it's going to be amazing.
0: I think it will be amazing. And one of the themes of the process is shared stories. There will be time within this two-day period for all the participants in small groups to actually share Their own stories. And as someone who has taught the art of dialogue around the world, I have to say, in my own calling to host uh, this space for different aspects of the transformational evolutionary energy to come together, I have learned that the deep listening of our own audience that's virtually present here right now, John, uh, even though we're together, you know, physically alone in the studio, is calling forth whatever is called forth in what you articulate and what i articulate so already there's a presence that's non-local that's beyond time and space the future the past have collapsed in a sense into this eternal now and this is something that physics understands uh, and something that mystics understand it's something that conventional logic uh, sometimes regards with great skepticism as well that doesn't make any sense to me but it does make sense When you have this experience and you can feel that whatever is being evoked is a revelation that's coming from a common humanity, as Barack Obama called it, a common culture beyond just the humans. It's coming from the cosmos itself, as Richard Tarnas will talk about, where in a participatory epistemology, which is a very elegant and fancy way to say that as we participate In dialogue with the cosmos, that's how we learn. Epistemology means how we learn. So a participatory epistemology means that as we come together, we actually learn more about ourselves, we learn more about the world, and we do it from a deeply respectful and honoring way that is not anthropomorphic, is not human-centric. It's willing to be in this wonderful evolutionary perspective that will allow the planet And the earth itself and the sky to communicate with each other as was understood by many of the ancient cultures in their highest form so I like this notion of the highest factor we're we're going to want to recognize that to take you as an example that you're someone who has brought to the Mayan perspective with your deep appreciation and respect for it a wider lens, you might say, by being able to situate it in a world in which it has many resonances with other traditions. So you've actually brought something new to the table, but you're not in the process trying to colonize or make a utopia out of the Mayan insights. It's just another passionate gift that is being extended in this great dance of of evolution. And so for that, John, I just really want to thank you. You have been a true amateur. You've not been (laughs) protected by an economic uh, stability of being a tenured faculty member in the academy. You've followed your bliss, as it were, to say, acknowledge, as you've said, your inspiration with Joseph Campbell. You've, You've followed your heart call to really explore this tradition. And I'm going to invite you then to maybe give a little summary at this point as we close of how you see your own experience as you're writing this book contributing to your own participation that you're looking forward to in this conference on May 29 and 30
1: well I guess in a word I'd say it's been transformational which I suppose is to be expected when you're engaged with this kind of material transformation is not an easy thing necessarily there's been lots of challenges but I think that if you're not constantly challenging yourself then you're gonna fall back into the muck, as you said. Um, so one thing that I wanted to point out uh, that I, I think my continuing role as a 2012 ologist mm-hmm. is to offer clarity and discernment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that constantly is getting my attention is the the amount of uh, disinformation and misconception that is thrown at this 2012 topic, and I think that it's important for people to understand that anything that's coming out has to be treated with a skeptical eye, you might say, and one has to have an eye towards sensing whether it's reinforcing ego or it's reinforcing um, a larger perspective, uh, a selfless perspective. And since you brought up the Barack Obama election, I thought that it would be appropriate to mention that, without wanting to sound trite, that the the election process between Obama and McCain was archetypal, absolutely. I mean, it was, in a sense, the fulfillment of the Maya prophecy, because these two people represented perfectly ego consciousness, self-interest, the old vanguard that must pass and be transformed, moved into the next year. And then Obama, who represented the more selfless, taking the large uh, unity position. So this is actually what the Maya creation mythology in its own archetypal content illustrates for what is to happen, you might say, at the end of the cycle. So it's it's really fascinating then to, uh, to consider how we're living in an era in which uh, these things are taking place. And uh, I'm just grateful to be here.
0: I think that's a beautiful way to put it. When one can say that with real heartfelt sincerity and authenticity, I'm just grateful to be here. That's a tremendous statement. And it's the statement that indigenous peoples have made from time immemorial, that I wake up and I see beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty all around me. Today is a good day to die. really means today is a good day to live because the death and rebirth process is happening at every moment. And so today is a good day for me to let go of preconceptions. Today is a good day for me to be grateful for that which is before me. Today is a good day for me to be grateful for how I can serve others. And you've said it beautifully, John, that the litmus test for any coming together, any gathering, whether we do it one-on-one as we're doing here or around the dinner table or in a meeting or in an election or in a conference like the gathering coming up in fort collins colorado in may 29 and 30 is does the energy exchange that happens there promote a deeper heartfelt appreciation and gratitude or does it constrict us into some kind of fear-based or maybe even arrogant separation from others or from the rest of the planet. And that, I think, really is the free will aspect that you're talking about, that we can choose a perspective, choose our higher perspective at every moment in our own lives, and to come together with that perspective is what we intend to create as a fertile womb so that all the seeds that can be (laughs) brought together in this conference can, can bloom. So for all of your lifelong work, John, and it's been such a great pleasure to do these over the years and to watch the evolution of your work, of my work, of our fellows uh, over the last decade, it's been a real deep pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, Duncan, and thank you for everything that you're doing. I have found our conversations over the years to be scintillating and stimulating, and you're a person who I immediately thought of to bring on board as our our speaker and master of ceremonies because you have a special way of contextualizing and framing and facilitating a process. It's a process-oriented thing. And our conference is really about an invitation for people to participate in a transformation. So there's no guarantees, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is something that uh, everybody brings their own energy to it. Mm -hmm. And it's our hope that we can model and illustrate what you might call an awakening into, I, I think, you know, evolutionary terminology, I think, works well enough for, you know, certain things, but I, I really like the term awakening. Mm-hmm. Awakening. I do too. The awakening mm-hmm. of this this larger perspective that's already there. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the unveiling thing. Uh, I don't know how much we're really trying to create or generate or build something new, I think we're trying to unveil or awaken something that's always been there, but that we forgot. And that's a kind of a key thing. And so coming together and discovering that together with other people can uh, just be a glimpse of uh, a higher potential that we all have. Beautifully put.
0: And I think that's exactly the etymology of the word enthusiasm. It means literally to be engodded, but not God as some Mm. a separate entity, but that sense of the divinity that's innate within each of us. And when we tap into that, we do feel a clarity. We feel a generosity of spirit and we feel an energy that we can bring to our own daily activities, to our families, to our communities, to our participation in the national and international task ahead of us now to actually take seriously the fact that certain old economic and political forms and forms of transportation and uses of energy from the fossil fuel economy, they need to end. They have to end because they are not sustainable. And each one of us will be encountering that falling apart in whatever way we do. It could mean loss of income. It could mean loss of many things in our lives. But if we keep our eyes on this particular perspective. will have the inner trust and energy and enthusiasm to carry this larger vision forward. So in no way is this 2012 conference meant to be an escapism from everything that's happening. Quite the contrary. It's meant to be perhaps one of the most practical things we can do to contribute and serve our larger communal and planetary societies.
1: I think Colorado is really ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, innovative community-based experiments in alternate fuel and energy and community-based farming. Uh, I'm so glad this is happening here in Colorado, my home state, and uh, bringing people together along the front range in springtime. It's going to be a beautiful time, and I think that there's a a real chance for lasting connections uh, built between participants, as we all try to uh, take responsibility for uh, transforming the world into a sustainable place
0: well. The time has come where we must close this particular dialogue, and I'll have to say, John, in once again honoring you and your stories, that in doing so, we're honoring the stories of all those that are listening to this, and this great invitation is going out here to participate in this pilgrimage, this moving toward a particular gathering so that next week we'll be talking with Saban Fusome and as we're sharing these stories with all the presenters in advance, it's acknowledging that whatever's being called forth once again is being called forth from the people who will be participating in the gathering, those that are listening to these dialogues. And so I see it, in a sense, as a contribution. You say, here in Colorado, from the energy field of Colorado, it's a way that we can share what we experience. There'll be people coming, we know, from the ticket sales, literally from all over the world with their stories. And so I'm very much looking forward, and at the same time staying right here in the present moment. That's our invitation to you. So I'm Duncan Campbell, your host. I've been really delighted to have John Major Jenkins with me in this dialogue. And we both extend to you a very warm invitation to join us and all of the other participants in 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation, May 29 and 30, in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information to register, you can go to wwwunveiling 2012 www.unveiling2012.org Be with us again next time as we continue on Living Dialogues. 2012 Now, Empowering the Transformation, a uniquely innovative, interactive, and affordable gathering in this time of global uncertainty will take place Friday night and all day Saturday, May 29 and 30, at the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in Fort Collins. Beyond just information, to practical tools for change and direct experience of participating in the ongoing transformation of our times. Now is the time and the opportunity to synchronize consciousness with the evolutionary pulse of the cosmos. Join world-renowned speakers as we explore and experience together the transformative dynamics necessary for a successful transit from now through the year 2012 and beyond. Featuring Stanislav Groff, Richard Tarnas, John Major Jenkins, Saban Fusome, Duncan Campbell, William Henry, Robert Sittler, and Christine Page. More information available on the website www.unveiling2012.org. See you then. And visit us on my website, livingdialogues.com. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers listed on my livingdialogues.com website, once you have entered your free subscription to the Living Dialogues podcast here on Personal Life Media, future living dialogues will automatically be downloaded to your computer on a weekly basis or simply browse through the list of programs here whenever you like download them or listen to them on your computer thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program all the very best and stay tuned now after the music for some very interesting opportunities available to you as a listener to living dialogues